This is the Tame Aperture Podcast. Open the five bay doors, please, Hal. Hello, Hal, do you read me? Do you read me, Hal? Do you read me, Hal? Affirmative, Dave. I read you. I read you. I read you. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. Come on down and jump some of this shit. Sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Welcome everybody to the Tame Aperture Podcast, where we talk all things movies from first-time directors, indie films, art house, and much, much more. Today we continue our series into the mind of Mr. Kubrick and talk the 1971 film A Clockwork Orange. In an England of the future, Alex and his droogs spend their nights getting high at the Corova Milk Bar before embarking on a little of the old ultra-violence. A Clockwork Orange is a 1971 dystopian crime film adapted, produced, and directed by Kubrick based on the 1962 novel of the same name. It employs disturbing, violent images, comments on psychiatry, juvenile delinquency, youth gangs, and other social, political, and economic subjects. The film premiered in New York City on December 19, 1971, and was released in the United Kingdom in January of 72. The film was met with polarizing reviews from critics and audiences alike due to its depictions of graphic violence. It was later withdrawn from British cinemas at Kubrick's behest and was also banned in several other countries. On the flip side, it received several awards and nominations, including four nominations at the 44th Academy Awards. And in 2020, the film was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. Hi, I'm Gabe Bienendahl, filmmaker, film instructor, and movie enthusiast, and I'm joined by none other than my partner in crime, Mr. Alan Martindale, veteran podcaster and editor. Alan, how the hell are you? I'm good, man. We're... we're... We're into some some dark Kubrick. We're we're advancing from the killing uh, of last week to a clockwork orange. What the hell? Uh that's a very good question. What the hell? This um I before before we get into the film, I want to say that years ago, this is a long time ago, I read the book. Wow. And I just want to say the book is written entirely in the fucking language that these guys speak. The entire book is written that way. So as difficult as it is to understand them, the book, it took me like four chapters, I think, before I started to kind of get the hang of what was happening. This is what I believe to be called like NADSAT language. There's a particular language for it um it looks to me as though it's a mix borrowed from russian words it also contains cockney rhythm slangs things from the king james bible german and some other unclear origins so it's this concophony of language uh that they speak and it's just it's just him and his droogs that speak it right like no one else does yeah from what I can tell, it's it's their yeah. own little or that subculture. It, it could yeah. be a, anybody in that kind of subculture. So this film is intriguing to me, and and I've always wondered why. So before we get into it, uh, I remember the first time I saw this film, 
I was, I must've been, I was probably like sophomore year in college, freshman, sophomore year in college. So I was probably 22, 23 years old. And I watched it and I walked away like absolute and utter confusion. I, it makes sense why, man. It's, it's, it's. But confusing. here's the thing. There was this weird intrigue. Everything about this movie is the exact opposite, I would say, mostly. I mean, everyone has elements of darkness to them, I think. Uh, not to this extent. But I think everyone has bits and pieces of who they are that are that are dark. But there was something when I walked, I just remember thinking, and I don't remember the detail, but I do remember the impression, which was, I'm basically the opposite of all this, all these characteristics in how I grew up, how I treat people, how I go about my life, et cetera. But for whatever reason, and I still, to this day, Alan, cannot explain it in terms of why it intrigues me so much. But upon this rewatch, I think I started to get some ideas on what it is that I, that I enjoy about this movie. And there's things that, of course, I don't enjoy that are completely abhorrent. And, but I also think that there's a, that, you know, we talk about this, you know, this social commentary. There's something being said that's deeper. I mean, it has to be. I mean, culturally, we understand who Kubrick is. And ultimately, there's always going to be an underlying context. Always. Always. So give me, before we kind of break down some of the film and talk about some of the characters and go over some of the things, look, um, I would say if this is one of these podcasts where if you have not seen a Clockwork Orange, that you just pause us, you go to Netflix because it's currently on Netflix or anywhere, you watch the film, and then you come back and listen to our podcast on it. It's one of those. Yeah, you can't. I don't even know how anyone could could try addressing, discussing this, or following a discussion about this film unless you've seen it, and unless you're pretty familiar, like pretty fresh in your brain. Because there are a lot of things I I've seen this movie a bunch of times, and there's there's stuff I was picking up still to this day that I don't remember picking up before. Uh, the older I get, the harder it is to watch. I, I think I watched it for the first time maybe as a senior in high school. And I remember loving it, absolutely loving it. And then watching it again and being like, well, I don't remember it being this bad, like this crazy. And then watching it again. And, and as I get older, I'm just like, this is, it's, it's very tough to watch at times. And yeah, there are scenes in this movie and and this is this is an it, it brings up certain things of conversation it just that never crossed my mind but to some reason for some reason it brings up thoughts about our culture our society who we are as human nature uh, I think he's alluding to some of that stuff but it's in the most difficult thing to process <laughs> yeah. and, and and partly because <clears throat> look we did I mean. And partly because of it, it's done so, it feels absolutely authentic. It feels real. It feels, this is not done, I don't think, although some people might, satirically, like it feels very authentic. 
there are funny parts of this movie. There and are those- funny parts, but there are the ones that I'm referring to. You're talking about rape, murder, right. violence. Um, I, I just mean sexual things. Like there's a lot in there that's, that's it, it, it gets real for moments. It does. Uh, and the reason why I bring up the funny things, because I think it's much needed. Like it's so, if this was just beating you over the head with this, this horrible imagery and everything that happens, then we're watching martyrs, you know, like we, we need a, we need some sort of comic relief and we get it. And I think it's done very effectively. And I think it's placed very effectively. Um, I had one big question though, uh, watching this and I don't know how to answer it. And so I'm hoping, I'm hoping you do. What makes a good movie? And is this a good movie? Because I think objectively, anyone who looks at it is like, yeah, that's a good movie. But there's nothing I like about it. You know, like, it's kind of like you said, like, there's something intriguing about it. There's something fascinating. There's something entertaining about it. I just don't know what it is. I'm watching this. It's tough to watch. It's hard to get through, but you can't look at it at all and say it's not a good movie. So what makes a good movie? I don't understand. I don't understand something that should just be intrinsically known to every single person who sits down to watch a film. I always default to the two things. Like number one, do I form some kind of emotional attachment to what I'm like, do I feel something? So humor, sadness, anger, et cetera. That's number one. It's, it's like emotionally, do I feel it? The thing for me that isn't always for everybody else that I think like if you were to go watch a Marvel Universe film, you're, you're probably not going to get number two. You might get number one, you like feel bad or like you feel happy or excited or whatever. But I don't think you're going to get number two. And number two is for me, the intellectual stimulation. Does it provoke me to internalize something? or think about the bigger picture in whatever context that is. And this does both. And so for me, that's why, that's what makes it a good movie. And I agree, there are parts that feel slow. There are parts that feel, can I keep, I don't wanna keep going through this thing. Like there are elements to it, but I'm always defaulting like those two positions of emotion and intellect, I think mostly are always challenged. I would agree with that. I think, I think that's a good, I think that's a good definition. Um, I don't know if I'm connecting with, with a bigger picture thing with this though. Like I, I'm looking at the imagery and I'm looking at all. I, it does make me think though, first of all, number one, absolutely. Like you're feeling something no matter what throughout this entire movie. Uh, there's no way you can walk through this unemotional. Uh, second though, for me, like, I don't know if I'm getting a big picture thing. I don't know if I need a big picture thing, but it absolutely, my brain has not stopped thinking about it since, since it ended. Yeah. I, I, and, and that's what I mean. Intellectually it doesn't even have to be big picture. Uh, it, it can be, mm-hmm. but I don't think it has to be. I think it's something that it sounds silly, but it, it buries inside. Like it goes under your skin and you, it doesn't leave. Yeah. And then you're kind of itching at it. 
and you're trying to figure out why the hell is it itching? And I still don't entirely know. Right. And I think for me to come out and be like, Oh, I've, I broke Kubrick. I understand clockwork orange. Exactly. There's enough on the internet. There's enough people th- I, telling. Well, I, we've said this in the past. I just think you're full of shit. Yeah. Now, does that take away from the fact that we can walk out with our own interpretations? Of course not. That's the whole point. That's the beauty of movies. And it, right. That's the thing that draws us to them is that we get to interpret and perceive our own way. But, and I have mine, I have thoughts on it, but I don't know that a, it's not even a bigger picture thing. It's that thing that crawls under my skin and won't leave. And then I got to be like, what's, what's it itching at? Or what am I itching at? What's that thing that's, you know, so. Well, and, um, and on that note though, uh, because there are a lot of people out there who will tell you definitively, this is what it's about. And more with 2001, but also with the clockwork orange and everything Kubrick does. This is what this is about. Like if you watch that, that documentary we talked about when we, uh, when we watched the shining, I think it's called room two, three, seven. And it's like, they just interview people who know exactly, they know exactly what the Shining's about. They know more than anybody else and everyone has different ideas. So I, I think it does. Uh, I think it, it is good that we, that we say, cause I have theories that I'm going to probably, that I'm definitely going to bring up. Those are just my theories. I don't know, man. I don't know. I can just tell you what I think of it. And I don't want to act uh, or, or give off the impression that I think I definitively know because I definitely don't. I just kind of know my theories. No, ab- absolutely. And I think that's a good way to, to premise it. I also think that what, before we dive into it deeper, is what I find interesting about this is that in 1973, it's banned in the United Kingdom. So there's something in the film that's deep and dark enough that they won't even exhibit the film in the UK. Yet the book, which is worse, is not banned. (laughs) Crazy. And apparently, and I don't know the validity of this, but also Kubrick himself was a little bit disheartened by the banning and the protest, but... He eventually uh, comes around to agree with it. And then I guess what happened was there was an actual, and I don't know, like I said, I don't know how valid this is because you can find a bunch of shit on the internet. But there was the, a rape of a Dutch girl by a group of men singing, singing in the rain. Oh, my God. Right. So a real story, not just fabricated in a movie sense and as horrific as that already is, even to, to see in a fictional world. Uh, and that um, was the other reason that they banned the film, because they felt as though it was um, a catalyst for people to. Which that's a whole nother topic. So I don't want to get too far, but we could talk about that. I could probably discuss that for 10 or 15, 20 minutes. Right the influence of film and media uh, or is it, or how highly influential is it? Is it responsible for those things? And then at what point do you take out that responsibility and put it on the, the, the person or the individual, right? Yeah. Well, like politicians have been trying to blame video games for all of society's violence since video games were invented. Right. 
like in, in movies are absolutely no different. Right. Media. And, like, and that's what I mean. And so, but it was banned. And so a movie that's banned is that becomes in and of itself societally controversial because this film is came out in 1971. So this film is about 50 years old. And even after 50 years, and here's the thing as we get into it now, it's still intense and it's still disturbing. And it, 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 to me, again, like I said, it's only gotten more so as I've gotten older. Maybe it's just my, my view of the world is a little bit more seasoned so I can understand the depravity of all this. Right. So let's get into it. I think we'll, we'll talk, I'm sure we'll get off on multiple tangents throughout the discussion. But basically, let's do an introduction to these characters. We got four uh, band of misfits, is what I call them, droogs, as they call themselves. It's a gang, a small thug gang. And they're led by Alex. And Alex is played by Malcolm McDowell. And then he has his three compadres, two of which I remember the name, one I don't. We have Dim and Georgie. And then the third one is almost insignificant because he doesn't really come into the plot later like the other two do. But there's these four guys and we open up in this otherworldly, futuristic, off-kilter, hyper-sexualized world. Uh, in a bar. I guess it's a milk bar. Milk bar. There's got to be something in the milk though, right? My thought is, yes, it's definitely uh, pumped up with something. No? I think it... I think they allude to that as yeah, well. I think they imply that there's something in there. There's got to be some kind of uh, stimulant inside the milk, whatever that is. and. Already, I'm fascinated. We get here's the thing, Alan, about the Kubrick shot. And meet, the first shot is the Kubrick close up. That, that zoom out. That uh, yeah, with, with the Kubrick stare. The Kubrick stare. The thousand yard deep stare. Malcolm McDowell, Alex, just staring the camera lens as it zooms back, and it reveals where they are in this very weird room surrounded by naked or not naked mannequins with i don't know it's the weirdest room it doesn't even make sense um it does not feel like a bar or club of any anything that i would be familiar with it's a very narrow room too and it is it some it's got to be and it's also and i haven't read the book so it's interesting and i don't know how much you can recall from it because you read it quite a while ago and sometimes naturally we forget things and <clears throat> It's some kind of post-apocalyptic world, some kind of futuristic world. What I do get, even if I don't know the environment entirely, is that it's different. Yes. It's not, it's this world, but it's not. Right. It, there, there are hints of, of what we would feel familiar with, but overall, it, it's, it's, it's like a, a, a mashup of what a futuristic world would be and our world. Like it's, it's, it's strange. Right. If there's some kind of detached society, we see some common similarities that present themselves to today's world, but it's definitely different. Mm -hmm. um, 
So it introduces these guys. They basically just go around the first, and we'll talk about some of the scenes and some of the stuff, but the first 30 minutes of the movie is just them going around creating a ruckus. Um, Yeah, beating the shit out of vagabonds, um, getting in fights with other gangs. As that other gang is about to gang rape. A woman. Yes. <laughs> Which this is the thing, the shocking value of the movie is like, I, I, I might have to fast forward. Like it just feels, yeah. and that's what I mean. It's not done in a way that it, it feels real. It feels like there's a camera there. And then all of a sudden we're just observing this documentary in a sense. It doesn't feel like a movie, if that makes sense. It doesn't feel like a fictional thing. There are so many shots that feel like it's actually happening. Like there's one later on we'll talk about. And it, by the way, Malcolm McDowell, this was a this had to have been a very tough role to play because he's getting beat up all the time and it looks very real. All the violence, like you said, it looks real. There's a there's a point where he's being um his head is being dunked in like a trough of water and it's one continuous shot and he's under that water for ever yes and we'll get into that scene because i have some thoughts i want to ask you on that and you're right that's one take to the point where you're thinking that's 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 a dummy that's not him until they bring him up and it's him yeah so it it, there's just so many points where i'm like how this it doesn't this doesn't feel like a movie at all like you said this is the um the the suffering of Kubrick, which is make you do a take and stick your head in water for a minute. Uh, <laughs> like, it was so cold where they were at. You could see the breath and he's under this water. Like, can you imagine doing that over and over again? Well, if it holds true to the Kubrickian formula, uh, many takes were done. I'm sure. <laughs> the, uh, what's interesting, and, and you get into this scene where and, and it becomes important later, but you have the Droogs who basically beat the shit out of this vagabond um, telling through narration how much they hate old people. <laughs> and they beat right. the shit out of him. Then they go, what, what, I, what I do like, this is where I appreciate the cinematic essence, the filmmaking, is it's scattered with juxtaposition of image to action. And the example is in the theater after they beat the shit out of the vagabond. They go to this theater where Billy and the boys are nearly gang raping a young woman. Uh, fortune, and this is what's ironic in some sense is fortunately Alex and his droogs stop it because they want to fight. So right. that's good. <laughs> right. right. Uh, at least, I mean, the stoppage. Before we get into that theater, there's these shots of like flowers and decorative art in the theater and the theater is supposed to be this place of art and this place of kind of beauty. And, and this one in particular now has been run down. And then this absolute, hor- absolutely horrific event is about to transpire. So that's what I mean. I, I, and you see this throughout the whole thing and I won't give every example, but one of the things I put in my notes is like almost every scene or every few scenes, there is a, intentional juxtaposition between an image and the action that's happening. 
So the images, the flowers, the theater, the beauty, and then underlying that is this just horrific, violent playground for rapists and fighters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it, just the whole world's dilapidated. This Everywhere's goes, dilapidated. This goes into my theme and in the breakdown, I'll talk about that. Cause yeah, it's absolutely dilapidated, but that goes into the, the juxtaposition of our world. And I'll talk about that later. That's my, I have a thesis that I want to run by you. Uh, the boys fight Billy and his band of misfits. <laughs> and then uh, they speed off in this rear projection scene inside Alex's car, hooting and hollering. I, I love it. I think it, I mean, it's absolutely sur surrealist. It, it feels fake. It works. It, For everything it, else that's real, that's what you're saying, like to all the shots that feel authentic and they feel in some essence, they're beautiful, but they're like documentarian as well. Like this, this is like an homage to a 1940s movie or 50s movie. Right. Well, I just like because you're getting a slice of, of this is the first time you're getting to see the pure joy they get from committing what they call ultraviolence. Like they, they are absolutely loving every second of this. And I, that's why I think it works because it's like, it's like a moment in time where we stop all the realism. And now we're going to have a little stage play where we can kind of go in and, and see their reactions. It's got the close-ups of, of each droog and their reaction. And they're just having a blast. And it's, I loved it. Yeah. And comically as they're driving down the road, playing chicken with every car coming down it cuts from the rear screen projection, the back screen projection shot to a reverse shot of the cars that we see coming down and the cars, the motorcycle, the van, they're all just, those are real shots of these cars, motorcycle, van crashing into the side of the road. <laughs> yep. They call it, uh, or they call it hogs of the road. That's what they call hogs it. Of the road. Um, yeah, and this, this represents, a, to me, it's like this lawless society. These kids, who, who, where's these kids' parents at? Well, to me, I mean, these, these kids, to me, the whole movie is about adolescence. And um, this is what, you see sexualized images everywhere, everywhere that they go in this entire world. Because when you are in, when you're an adolescent and you've gone through puberty or going through puberty, that's all that's on your mind. Yeah. And you also have, like, you, you think you're not quite an adult, but you want to have the independence of going out and causing mayhem and doing whatever you want and indulging every, every thought that comes into your brain, including uh, giving the old in out, which is uh, what they call rape and, and just beating the shit out of people and getting in fights because that's, it's that aggression. It's that testosterone that's building in you. Right. Me, that's the whole movie. And that's, yeah, there's a big theme of that going on in here for sure. Right. And, and that's why I really love the, the car scene because it, it, it just encapsulates it so well. And there's no law and order. That's the other thing. These kids, I mean, in their minds, and I think that's true of adolescence, which is like if you're a teenager, you go cause a ruckus or do things. Maybe not, of course, to that extent that they are, but you go do something and in your mind, you're not always thinking of the repercussions and the law and the order later. Right, right. Um, yeah, not at all. And, and, and yeah, it doesn't matter to you. I mean, just like when he's, yeah, at the beginning of the film, I honestly didn't, I just thought he was a grown adult 
Intel. That was, other, that was the other thing too. I, what's funny that you say that, cause I completely agree. I, I thought he was like a 20 year old plus kid, like a, an adult. I mean, until he goes home and then the next day his, his mom tells him it's time to get up for school. Yeah. And then he gives her the, the traditional excuse. Yeah. Belly aches. <laughs> Gulliver. <laughs> Gulliver. Yeah. But before we get to that, I do want to talk about maybe not, you know, because they end up arriving at a home of this wealthy couple. What appears to me, just based on the shot, he, he's, he's on a typewriter. He's some kind of writer, some kind of uh, journalist, novelist, something. And they go to this home and knock on the door and pre- they, they fabricated this whole play in their mind, this theatrical version of there's been a wreck on the road. We need to come in and use the telly. And the wife is absolutely reluctant to let them in, rightfully so. And yes. what I find interesting is like the, the husband, in some, I mean, either stupid or kind-hearted, he means well, I think. And he's like, oh, we better let him in then. Yeah. And, and, let, and so she lets him in and then he, well, he breaks in. They're masks. They got their maskies. That's what they call them, maskies. <laughs> Alan loves the, the verbiage. The eggy wags, they eat eggy wags for breakfast. Eggy wags and maskies. Um, and she lets, or she doesn't even let him in. They kind of kind of break in after she undoes the, the lock. And let's just say, and we'll, we won't get into the over details, but things don't end so well. No, no, it's pretty brutal. This is one of those scenes, like the one before it, where you're presented with the overaggression of young people but to the extent of forcibly raping a woman and abusing the man, they knocked the shit out of him. And it's just another tough scene. You're just like, holy shit, I might not want to watch this anymore. This is right out the gate, man, right out the gate. And they do a very good job of making you immediately detest Alex with a passion. Like to the point where I later on, so happy. Yeah. What happens to him? Yeah. And this, once again, and here we go, Alan, is my, some of my theory is, once again, you have this absolutely abhorrent event, this act, juxtaposed with what you associate as a kind of fun-loving, simple song, singing in the rain. Rain. Like there's... An, an innocent song in, in the sense of how it was first portrayed in a movie in a musical years earlier. Do you know what I mean? And is, but I love that juxtaposition once again, of course the event in look, we're talking about the movie. We're not talking about real life, but right. the, the movie crazy event, but juxtaposed with this kind of fun loving song of association of, of what's, to, what's kind of fun and silly and kind of, and uh, once again, he throws that in there, image to action. In this case, the, instead of image, it's audio or music. Uh, Just so Interesting so. choice. I don't know if in the book it identifies that while this act is happening, that, that he sings that particular song or if that's a Kubrick add-on later. Yeah, I, I don't remember. The only thing I really remember about the book at all is that the whole thing is, I remember the final chapter that's Eggie not- Eggy Wegs. 
Eggy Wags, yeah. I remember the, the final chapter that's not in the movie, uh, which is a point of contention for a lot of people. And I remember that the whole book is written in that language. And I remember in this scene, I do remember because I swear my memory, I'm old, I'm 40. Memory doesn't always serve me the best. But when I saw this in college, I remember watching this scene while she's being raped and they're singing, singing in the rain. For the first time, I just remember thinking like, what is going on here? This is so wildly wrong on yes. every level. Yes. And yet, Alan, I'm horrifically intrigued at what movie is being presented to me right now. Yeah, you. I think you want to make sense of it. You want to piece it together. You want to figure it out. That's a and good I point. Think that, I think that's what... I think that's what kept me going all these viewings because even this time, even watching it this time, I'm, I'm seeing this and I'm like, I don't know if I can do this again. It's, it's so bad, but I think that there is that thing. It's like, I got to figure out what the hell's happening and right. why it's happening. That enigmatic, curious discovery. I think that's also part of the analysis of the film, which is basically us, our humanistic nature of wanting to figure things out or problem solve in a sense of wanting to know the answers. Yep. And so, uh, absolutely abhorrent scene. <laughs> and, and, uh, they go back to the milk bar, um, weird scene there with these studio executives. I think it's another punch in the face to Hollywood from Kubrick because there's TV executives and they're just pompous, arrogant idiots. Mm -hmm. No, I think so. I mean, Except he, he does give a, a flattering she sings talent to, to her, to the, to the female. That's true. And she sings Beethoven's Ninth, uh, to which Alex loves. He loves Beethoven's Ninth. Yeah. Which is another, but that's in and of itself in the story, a juxtaposition. Alex is, an abho is a freaking criminal asshole. Beyond sociopath. The, sociopath, exactly yet loves Beethoven. Loves that beauty. So, yeah. And so, anyway, uh, this, but there's a plot point too there, and I think this is why it's constructed well as a story for me, because he actually uh, prevents one of his droogies, Dim, from insulting the woman because he wants to hear her finish. And this causes a friction between Dim and Alex. It's the start of a friction. Um. So they go back and that's kind of the start of the friction. And then it basically cuts to Alex in his bedroom and his mom. And immediately you understand a little bit. I feel like Kubrick's showing a little bit about the detachment of parenthood. Yeah, I think so. Cause he, he just plays his parents like a fiddle. Plays them like a fiddle. They don't seem overly interested. Oh, okay. His stomach hurt. And they just like, there's no extra concern. And granted, it's a different time. It's 50 years ago. I mean, I think today we're swinging the opposite direction where we don't give any. I, I do it sometimes and I, I want to be overly involved. But he basically tells his mom, I'm not going. And then it cuts to him at the record store, just well, walking first, around. Before he does that, uh, the, is this where the part where the, the and I, I call uh, him a officer because I don't know what else to call him. 
I assume he's he's like a, a, a social worker or a parole officer for Alex or something. Uh, yeah. And he's doing a basically a checkup. He's like, you haven't been to school. There's, you know, the, the, the rival gang was beat up last night. Your name was mentioned. Yes. And that, that's in there. Yeah. I think I, I, it's fun. I think you're right. I think it's a social worker. I thought it was like his school principal or school counselor or something. Right, right. But he says something along the lines, if, if you end up in jail, then it, it, then it's bad on me. Like I, I get in trouble for it or something along those lines. So. What did you think about this guy's performance? It's so Good. over the top, but I, I loved it. That's what Kubrick does though. The more, the more films I watch of him, the more I'm realizing that he really loves it when his actors just ham it up and, and just go over the top. He loves it. You've identified that in a couple of these films. And the more you say that, the more I think you're right. And I don't know that I thought that originally, but now that you say that there are certain characters in his movies that he just, he just fucking hams up. Well, and, and I, when I say, when I use that terminology, it's got a bad implication, but it's, it's no, not, bad. it's not bad. It I know you're not meaning it in that. Yeah. Right. Right. It's, I'm not, I'm not trying to disparage their performance. It's just, it's, I think it, that's what sells it. That's what makes it so good. It, and so, uh, and we'll, we'll see a character later who does it. And I think Malcolm McDowell does it too. A yeah, lot. He of definitely it. does. And His I've, principle though is, is funny because after every statement, he says, you got a good home here. You got good parents, loving parents. Yes. Yeah. Everything's yes and exaggerated. And can I say, what the hell is he doing sitting on the bed and then sitting next to uh, Alex? And then they, he pulls him back and grabs his nutsack. I, I don't, the whole, I don't get it. I don't understand any of it. What's crazy. And I know this is going to sound really weird to people listening that haven't really watched the movie. Is it, also, when I say it that way, it seems really, really sexual. But it, in this case, it's actually not. No, no. But Alex is I'm, in his... We got to state that. He's in his underwear. So <laughs> maybe a little bit stranger. I, I don't... It's, it's, it's some sort of intimidation. Yeah, but that's I, what, that's right. It, it, it's very forceful, powerful. It's, I got the power here. Right, and you right. need to listen to what I'm saying. Uh, can I just say, I missed one thing I wanted to talk about. I wanted to get your, after, right before this scene and after um, the previous scene that we discussed, Alex does come home that night and masturbates to Beethoven's Ninth. Now, this is not, in, I think if you were watching this for a time, you may not even catch that that's the, that's the underlying subtext of what's happening. Does that make sense? He cuts it in a way where it's very montage -y. You hear the music, you see pictures of uh, religious figures, you hear Beethoven, you, you hear Alex's narration talking about how much he loves it and how sensual it is in a, in a way. And this is his montage cut. Some of the imagery was strange too with, with Alex as a vampire. Yeah, this is what, these were things that, I love the montage edit right. and, and it's really well done. But yeah, there were images in there that I didn't understand. And I almost think, and tell me what, what you think here, is that Kubrick was going in to some kind of, uh, what do they call when the ad agencies do uh, subliminal messaging. I, I guess that's oh, what yeah. it is. Yeah. Cause he throws in random images. 
Well, and I, I also think it, it's trying to sell the point that Alex is a sociopath. He knows he's a sociopath and he loves it. I think that That's was part of point. Because he just, he, he, he really does. He enjoys being a monster and being uh, terrifying people. Loves he's unforgiving. It. He doesn't yeah. care. Doesn't care. He thrives in that, in that, in that. Yeah, that's a good point. So then the the, the school counselor comes, grabs his nutsack, and then leaves. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, Alex goes to the record store. Um, basically, sexual innuendo there. Two girls eating popsicles. He's not afraid to approach them. Uh, very masculine and mature for a young teenager. Very confident, by the way. I want to uh, actually commend Kubrick for not doing what was in the book at this point. Because in, in this scene, in the movie, he, he has sex with both the girls and it's consensual. And they look around his same age. Right. It's not that in the book. Two 10-year-old girls that he rapes. Oh, good job on Kubrick for not. I mean, this movie's already pushing the line. We're, we're already. <laughs> so thank you for not making it that terrible. Yeah. I, that was the case. I think I would turn it. I don't think I ever would have seen it. Yeah, I think it, that isn't that weird where we draw moral lines. Yes, yeah. it's true. I agree with you. I'm I, if if I. If that was the insinuation, I mean, yeah, I, I, that's dark. I can't even think about it. And and this was this was also done kind of playfully. I liked. Yes, the, it was very playful, very consensual, very teenage sexy in that sense. Yeah, and I liked that it was uh, it was a time lapse, you know, like. And I, you don't I just, really see anything in terms of nudity. I mean, you do, but it also happens so fast. I think he's basically under cranking the camera so that it, it it looks to be exceptionally fast. And there's some comedy in there too, because one girl, he's done with one girl. She gets up, she gets dressed. Uh, he gets done with the other girl. So he goes back to the first girl and takes off her clothes again. Like it's just the way it's done. I, there's some comedy in there. It's some comedy. He's, a, he's got his stamina for a young man. I'm going <laughs> to he does. <laughs> um. And we're only, look, we're only like, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes into this movie. Yeah. And, 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 all, and so we still have an hour and 45 minutes. That's it's about 2.15. It's too long. The movie's way too long. I know, but even up to this point, I think there's points later that can be reduced to Absolutely. speed it up. But up to this point, I'm still trying to put my head back on. Yeah. <laughs> It's a whirlwind of crazy shit. Um, this, then he comes back down and then his, his cronies, his droogies, confront him. Uh, Georgie's trying to take control of the band. The new right? way. The new way. Look, and basically that's what it is. And they, they come up with an idea to come up with a plan to pull off this crime. And Georgie's in, Georgie's in control now, not you, Alex. And Alex ain't having it. He ain't having it. Uh, and so that doesn't work out. That, that, 
that uh, coup to overtake Alex as the Droogie master <laughs> doesn't work. Um, and he confronts his, his, uh, his, his Droogies, uh, and they test his metal. doesn't work. They decide to pull off a crime. Georgie has a plan. And so, uh, they end up going to, well, no, first Alex makes sure they know who's the boss, right. Of the, of the band. Um, but they still hold resentment like Dim and Georgie, and it's going to come into fruition later in the story, but they hold resentment, right? Yeah. Because he, he just beats the shit out of him and cuts up, it cuts uh, up Dim's hand. And yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty tough. I mean, based on what we've seen so far, it's very mild, you know, relatively speaking, but it's, it's pretty rough. And I think I'm getting the sense this is the first time he's really uh, shown that violent side and, and turned it towards his droogs. Yeah. Because now they're, they're ready to go betray him. Yeah. It set, it's good story device. It's good story um, motivation. Yep. as we'll see in the next few minutes. I did love the transition. I don't know. I wanted to ask you what you felt about voiceovers or narration. Basically, mostly throughout the film, Alex is giving, uh, Malcolm McDowell's giving us narration. Did you, that throw you off or did you, were you, could you, could you roll with that? Oh, I, I, I could roll with it. I liked it because I like Malcolm McDowell. Um, I don't always love voiceover and narration. I think sometimes it's, a little too expositiony, but I think you really, this one really allowed us to get in the mind of Alex a little bit more. And um, I liked it. I don't know. I don't know what your thoughts were. I know you're yeah, not a big fan of it. I'm not, e <clears throat> I'm not either, but in this case, it gave a lot of good perspective into the character and I liked it. Um, and like you said, it didn't overwhelm uh, us with a bunch of exposition. I loved, I liked uh, technically one thing you did with the voiceover transition into the scene from the bar where he takes, so they go back to the bar, to a bar, and they tell him about, Georgie tells him about his plan. And then he's telling him about this cat lady that lives <laughs> isolated in the woods that has, and that, but they use that uh, as the voiceover transition into the scene of her, you know, doing her weird, it introduces that character, the cat lady. And, um, and up to this point, like there's still very little background, very little exposition, like where they live, the context about Alex's parents, other than some of the stuff we talked about. Um, and, and I like all that, but it leads us into this scene where his droogies are going to basically betray him. They go to this house. Uh, they try the old knocking uh, narrative, knocking, hey, my friend's car's broke down or someone's hurt. There's been a car wreck. Uh, doesn't work. This lady's too savvy. She's not taking that shit. Well, she also read the newspaper. That's from, true. About what happened last night. So she goes and calls the cops. That's right. It's been reported. So she calls the cops. And uh, and then that scene where after she gets off the phone with the cops and Alex just pops his head in the door because he climbed through the window. It was creepy. Very creepy. Well, and he just pops it because you got to remember, he's got his masky on and his masky has a long wiener nose, penis nose. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, obvious. I mean, I don't even want to call it subtext because it's not. <laughs> oh, there was no, uh, there was no, uh, it, yeah. It's a no penis subtlety nose. whatsoever. No subtlety. <laughs> um, 
but that's a creepy scene. And then this whole scene transpires. What we got to bring up, I got to ask you about this scene because we have the penis statue. There's a, there's a moment there. <laughs> I thought it's funny, man. I thought this is funny. There's a moment there when he pops his head into that room and he looks around and he sees uh, the poster. Again, very sexual posters. They're not posters. Very sexual paintings and artwork everywhere in this movie. But he walks in, he looks around, he sees the sexual artwork. Then he looks down, and he sees a penis butt stat. It's like a, it's a penis <laughs> that transitions right immediately into a butt. You know, <laughs> and, the, and it's just it's a quick moment, but the look on his face is hilarious because he's thinking exactly what we're thinking. Like, what in the hell is this thing? You know, and it's just it's I don't I don't know. It almost felt like he was breaking character. He probably wasn't. But it was just like it was so funny. His and reaction I, to the I, I don't think there's a way to not laugh at that prop. I don't care how mature you think what? you are. It's funny. What was he doing? I wonder what Malcolm McDowell was doing when Kubrick brought that prop out. <laughs> I mean, Kubrick just had a field day with this. Oh, he he thought he was, you know, he was just loving life with oh. the sexual innuendo or there's just not even any innuendo, yeah. just the straight in your face. Bring a naked. Can you imagine what, Mal literally think about it. What did Malcolm McDowell when he brought that prop out? And he's like, you're going to take this penis statue and you're going to kill this woman and crush her, blummage her to death with the penis statue. So you're going to take your giant wiener and you're going to, you're going to, you're going to smash this woman's face in with your wiener. That's now, so absurd. I don't even know how you come up with it. It's here's the thing. I'm not going to, you're going to, I'm not trying to get overly analytical, but I think there's subtext there. Oh, totally. Totally. Which is for me, the, the masculinity, right? The, the machismo, right? I'm in charge. Yeah. I'm bigger. Right. Figuratively and literally in this case. Uh, but I think he's, he's, he's swimming in, you know, this is where Kubrick's just swimming in juxtaposition. He's just swimming in, in subtext, uh, various elements of, of, uh, um, uh, subliminal messaging. You know, he's just swimming in it, loving life. Oh, it's just so over the top with everything. Like, that's what I love about it though. I think that's part of why I like this movie. Because he didn't, he didn't sprinkle in little things, little subtext here and there. He is beating you over the head with it. He, I he keep saying subtext. I'm being overt. No, right, right. He wants you to know exactly what he's trying to get at here. He's not like there's no, you know, one painting in the background, you know, hinting at it. It's like no, we're gonna we're gonna flood this room with dicks and vaginas and and boobs. That's what we're going to do. The entire movie. Everything is just going to be filled with this stuff. Can you imagine if you went into a prep meeting for a film that was this? Because you think about Clockwork Orange, you think in some context, serious film, serious filmmaker. And then he just comes into the prep room <laughs> to do the reading. <laughs> he just brought his big penis statue with him and said, here's what we're putting in every scene. Like how do you respond? Malcolm Adele's like, what? In Kubrick's tone, too. There's no humor, no it, sense it's of... It's just dry. 
yeah, just like this, this is, I want this, I want this on the, on the desk there. And like, you know, I want this here. I want that here. That will be placed here. And we know how, uh, how demanding he can be. So what if he's yelling about, (laughs) we need more statue back on the shelf. We need more milk coming out of the nipples. (laughs) (laughs) You are not rocking that penis statue properly. And the way, so when he when he pushes down on the penis and like kind of pops back up, the way it moves is it's like a rocking chair. Yeah, well, it's like a rocking chair, but it's also like um, it's almost like those uh, I want to call them bobbleheads, not bobbleheads. You know those little punching guys where you punch them and they come back up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. It, it moves kind of like that, where it's like kind of comes up and then it like jerks, and it's so funny. Yeah, it's uh, it works. Um, and like you said, I think this is where there's an alleviation from the serious tones of earlier in terms of the context that's happening and the subject matter. Mm-hmm. And yep. then you get moments of re- reprieve from the, uh, the over the top, in, in my opinion, absurdity of the situation. Because even when he kills her, it's not u- ultra violent. You don't see it. You just see the intercutting back and forth. And then it's alluded to that. She's been right. Blemaged uh, to death, but I will say one thing I, I want to, um, we, and I don't know when the, the order that, that these movies are going to go up or these episodes are going to go up, but we did talk about Dr. Strange love. And I, I kind of, I really got on Kubrick for, he's just not funny. He's not able to be funny. I take it back, man, because he. There are some genuinely hilarious things in this movie. Yeah, I think the penis statues. I think the murder scene's actually funny. Not just this, but later on in the jail, there's some funny stuff. There's, there's. I, I, I need to take that back. I think he learned a lot in the two movies, or uh, in the one movie that separated this in and in between. Yeah, about about comedy, about how to make comedy. And what's interesting about this one is the previous scene was completely horrific. And this one, this part, this scene's to much more comedic. Yes. So you're and just playing that spectrum pretty well. And I think it feels good to laugh at this point too. Uh, yeah. It's like being held literally under water at, at a horse trough and not being able to breathe and then being let up and being able to breathe. Yeah, exactly. A lot of stuff. There's a lot of things going on in this movie. Um, so now Alex is a murderer, but what happens is he comes out, the sirens are heard, they know the police are coming, she had called the police, and his droogies betray him 100%. Yeah, you could see it coming too. Smash him in the face with a bottle of milk and, and run, leave him for and the cops. And, and that basically puts him out and allows the cops to take him in. Um, he's now in the interrogation room. I actually thought the interrogation room was kind of funny too. Uh, particularly one scene where one of the cops is interrogating him about what he was doing there and why, you know, what happened. And uh, the cop tries to get him to talk and then Alex just burps in his face and then grabs his balls. Yeah. See, I like all this because he's in deep shit at this point in deep shit. And he still, because he's an adolescent, he still thinks he's smarter than the cops. He's still got that arrogance to him. He thinks he can, he's better than everybody. And it's not till later where he realizes that the world can really beat you down. 
Yeah, I think the fear of guilt and being caught for the crime that he committed comes later. But you're right, right here, he's, uh, it, it's not really there. He still thinks, oh, I can get away with just grabbing a cop by the balls and telling him I'm the man. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> um, then the school counselor comes in and basically says, yo, Alex, you're fucked. The lady that you blummage that you hit with the penis statue <laughs> is dead. And you're a, murderer. Uh, you're a murderer. And I can't help you. Good riddance. Can you imagine the relief he has to feel walking out of that, that police station? Never oh, he does it in a way, and I don't remember the line, but yeah, you're right. He does it in a way of like, <laughs> Like he's so happy, just the just the elation that he doesn't have to deal with this little prick ever again. And just for you, yeah, he does it in a way that's very Nelson Simpsons. Really? Oh, yeah, I'm wearing <laughs> my gay from all man shirt today. <laughs> you know what I mean? Though it's very the school counselor is very like <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, Love it. Alex is going to prison. Big time prison. I think he's sentenced to 12 years, 14 years, something like that. Yeah, 14 years. And then there's this. Uh, this to me, at least to a degree, is there's a it starts the the tonal shift in the story as he enters prison because he starts to get into not all the way. It just starts it the because there's an element of like forced obedience. He's given a number. Um, his name is some the traditional prison rules. His name is now a number. Um, and ironically enough, religions like immediately instituted in the atmosphere yeah. of the, of the, of the story while he's in prison. So um, one question I had about, about prison, is this something that, that they did in England or is this something that's just part of this future weird world that we're, that we're existing in where the prisoners are wearing suits yeah, I don't know. It was strange. They weren't, it, it didn't feel like the traditional prison garb. No, I would think that you wouldn't want to give prisoners ties, neckties. Yeah, would, unless you do want to give them neckties. You do. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It just to me, it seems a little, little sketchy. He makes friends with the, the priest, um, indicates in some of that voiceover, we do get some exposition slightly. Because he does indicate his own abuse in prison. Mm -hmm. He talks about certain things of torture, basically like adult men, and there's adult men like eyeballing him. Right. Because you got to remember, this kid's young. He's, you know, comparatively to, and I say that literally, like adult men are going to do adult things to a young kid. Right. Right. And th th he alludes to some of that. So now you're getting into, there starts the, the beginning of realization. A little we're bit. Also, we're also introduced to, I think, this is my favorite character in the whole film, and that's the guard, the main guard. Yeah. I think he's hilarious. And I don't know if, if Kubrick deliberately casts someone that looks a lot like Adolf Hitler or if that's coincidental, but it was very Hitler-esque. But I thought he was hilarious. No, Not, he I, I don't think Hitler's hilarious. I think this character is hilarious. Yeah, no, I, I, I would, I can see exactly what you're saying. I would imagine that there's probably some, some Kubrick forethought there. 
I, I think he's almost kind of making a joke of Hitler a little bit because even the way the guy like marches and moves and and yells at him and tells him to place things properly and do as I say. And yeah, I think he's, he's definitely kind of ma making a joke of Hitler a little bit, which I enjoyed. There's a, what, what I found funny and uh, was that Al Alex eventually kind of finds some solace in the Bible, but not in the way of doctrine, but in the violence, the sex, the fighting, the wars, and it cuts to this vignette piece of him imagining whipping Jesus, him imagining sleeping with women, him imagining violence, you know, like all the things that are read in the Bible. And then he alludes to the fact that I didn't like the other part because there wasn't any of this in it. <laughs> and well, and I love because after this little vignette piece, it cuts to him sitting there with his eyes closed. And we know because it's he's in, he's enjoying imagining himself committing the violence, uh, but it looks like he's praying, like yeah. you know, and so the it's the priest I, I interrupts him and is like <laughs> starts reading a scripture. Yeah, and I did like the cunning nature of Alex in in knowing what he needed to do to manipulate the priest. Yeah, because he knew that the priest is his way out of here. And so yeah, he knew he, him. he attempts to play the priest into nominating him into this new experimental treatment program that's supposed to speed up recovery and reduce your sentence. And he's yeah. trying to play the priest into that program. And even the priest is like, I, I don't, I don't know. Like I've heard bad things about it. I don't, I don't know if you should be doing this. Right. The priest is not on board actually. No, and Alex is just <clears throat> thick. But what ends up happening is uh, uh, an alignment of the stars because this new program that's run by the Minister of the Interior, basically a government official, arrives at the prison because they're doing a selection program. They want to select inmates to come test this new treatment. And... Um, <laughs> it's about reformation um, and it's called the Ludovico treatment. Don't know what significance that has, but that's what they call it. And I'm sure it's some significance. I'm sure it's something there that I, it's way over my head. Um, and he gets selected. He gets selected to go into this treatment that's run by the in, uh, minister of the interior run by the government for reformation. And he does it all because he wants to uh, get out early. He wants his sentence reduced. And, and this, this obviously goes to show Alex's naive naivety, naivete. I don't know how you say that word, um, but it shows that he's naive because you don't just get out of prison for free. Like it's not, you know, the idea that, oh, I'll just walk out. I'll just go get this treatment and I'll walk out of here and everything will be fine. That's not how life works. You know, they don't just let anyone out of prison. You're going to have to go through some pretty tough stuff. Like nothing in life is free. Right. You know, and you're this not is where, ironically enough, some of his innocence as a young person plays against him because he doesn't he's not going to realize that. Yeah, he, he, he is. This is the stage of life where you learn hard truths about the world. And I think this is 
exactly what is going to happen as we'll see. And I think Kubrick saying something about the government and something about the government offering these types of treatments. And we'll get into that later, but he gets to this treatment center. Can I just say, can I just say that Kubrick is, and we know this, but he's so unapologetic in long takes. Oh my God. (laughs) Because when Alex, and this isn't the first time in this movie, it happens with the guard when he first goes to prison, uh, long scenes that seem irrelevant is what I should probably say. And he has to turn in all his belongings and it just goes on. Yeah, that was too long. That whole sequence was long. It happens again when he goes to the treatment center, but this one's actually a long take, not, not the full sequence. When he's taken to the treatment center and the transfer of the paperwork, I swear it's like a minute long. And all they're doing is the doctor and the prison guard are just like looking at a document. And you're and- just like, what are, what, what are we doing? Why? Why? I don't know. But here's the thing. It was, it still stood out to me and I thought it was boring and long, but I was like, it, see, this is where Kubrick tricks me every time. Every time. Cause I'm like, why, what's, what's he doing so long on this take? Right. Like there's, there has to be something of significance here. Yes. I, I actually enjoyed it because I liked the guard. I thought he was hilarious. And some of his mannerisms, uh, during this shot were pretty funny, you know, like just his, the, the, just the formal official way things have to be done. I thought was hilarious, but yeah, I was wondering the same thing. I'm like, why, what's going on? What am I missing? I'm missing something. And I don't, I I, I don't think we were, I think he just likes long takes. I, I think that's a big part of it. And the next thing, the next chapter basically begins now. So we're, we're about 70 minutes in to the movie, okay? And the next chapter of the story is now we're going to see this treatment, which is basically an experimental treatment. Um, and we get another Kubrickian zoom in, and it's an emphasis on the serum. And this is what I was thinking. I'm not trying to get overly analytical, but why did he, the, the doctor goes into uh, it's the first day of treatment for Alex. He go, they, she goes in. She's like, hey, I'm going to give you. She basically says, pull your pants down so I can give you a, a shot on your, your ass. Yep. But he's very explicit in zooming in zzz, to experimental serum 114. It must mean something. It's got to mean something. I don't know what it would be, but it has to. But they give him this experimental serum. And then the big part of the treatment that we'll get to is basically he calls them Viddy films. They're basically movies, small movies. They put him in a straitjacket. His eyelids are pried open and he is subject to whatever is streamed in front of him from these Viddy films. He cannot look away. And this is another reason why I think Malcolm McDowell suffered while making this movie those things in the eyes that's real that's not you know that's not uh, you can't fake that because they show they and I, I wouldn't do that I wouldn't I'd quit I, I can't have shit going near my eye sharp things like that going near my eye to pry my eyes open uh-uh and how long did he have to have those things in his eyes because like you said 
Kubrick is notorious for doing take after take after take. How long did that have to go on? Yeah, I think uh, it, it's, it's, it's interesting because as a storyteller, you say, <clears throat> as a storyteller, you say, okay, I need this to feel real and authentic. So I, at the suffering of my actor, I will put the, you know what I mean? Like, and I think it would be hard for me as a filmmaker to subject them to want to do that. But you're playing in the, in the big, you're playing in the big leagues, dude. Oh, I get it. Because if you think about it, like think about Malcolm McDowell post clockwork orange career. I mean, he's renowned. This is an iconic in some ways, not always for good, but in terms of acting, it becomes a game changer for Malcolm McDowell for everything down the road. Yeah. Puts him on the map. I, and, and, I will absolutely, I mean, it's very effective. It's very effective at, as an audience member, seeing, like, having to watch those things go into his eyes. Yes. Gave me the most authentic feeling of discomfort, which puts me in Alex's shoes. Like, I now am as uncomfortable as I possibly can be, which is kind of the point of this entire thing, this sequence. Yeah, it, it creates a, a level of anxiety watching those things in his eyes as he's forced to watch these things. And the experiment starts there's starts out with violence. And he talks about how, oh, it's just a good cine. It's just a good film, Hollywood-like. And it feels real. And then it goes from there into like rape, sexual abuse, war, killing, bombings, bombings gunfires, buildings on fire, Nazis are involved in the montage of the film, all accompanied by Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Yep. Which is the ultimate torture for him. And the drug, Serum 114, it causes death-like paralysis. So, in other words, not only are you subjected to your eyes being opened, but you physically... You can't move an arm. You can't move a leg. Uh, what an anxiety-driven feeling. I cannot even imagine. That's just, it's horrible. The scene itself, it, it, the process of the experiment goes relatively short. In other words, like it's not a very long sequence of events before they present him to uh, a bunch of diplomatic spectators, politicians, prison guards, other forms of leadership to show to them how effective their treatment is. In the strangest stage play in the history of humankind. Oh my gosh. It's, I know you're not, this is another piece. Like before that with him being in the experiment was nauseating and, ang- and I was anxiety driven. And this, I laughed my ass off in a lot yeah. of ways. It was funny. It was funny. And, and cutting back to get the guards reaction to everything <laughs> just heightened the comedy. The, and then they test him the same way that you kind of saw the experiment was like the first test is this actor walks out on stage and physically and verbally abuses him. And then that passes. And then the next one is this sexual temptation of a woman who's half naked but then as soon as he goes to touch her and kind of imply the urge that he has, 
he starts feeling nauseous and sick. Or when the guy goes to, he goes to punch the guy for beating him up or physically abusing him, he starts feeling nauseous and sick. And so they call it, I wanted to get your thoughts on this because they call it essentially like a paradox. And the paradox is like doing good by being, you become and perform good tasks or being good by being overly subjected to evil. And the subjection comes through the observation of these videos and the serum. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, it's a cool- Do we believe that, I mean, we're no scientists, we know that. Do we I believe that's even a theory I, of possibility? I can't imagine how it could be. But who knows, man? Like, I, I, like you said, we're not scientists. I just can't imagine. Like if you're overly subjected, I, I don't think it works. But I think, I think you would become desensitized, if anything. Right, right. I think that's it. I, I, I'm not sure it's going to make you more averse to it at all. But even if I was, I, I can't imagine being a sexual deviant that is twisted enough to try and uh, rape a woman in a room full of people. Like th that was a weird little temptation <laughs> they threw at him. Well, he like, just tries he, to grab her chest. Well, right. But still like her breasts, even, but even it's like, there's a room full of people. Like, even if you really wanted to, no, you're not going to do that. What? No, that's a weird. Yeah. Well, we we've established that Alex is a sociopath. So I don't think he cares much about what other people think of him. <laughs> Good point. I, I would just think he'd, he'd be immediately arrested. Or, You're I thinking of it in how we would. First off, we, our thought is that okay, this is completely inappropriate. Nor would right. this ever happen. But Alex is completely different than us. <laughs> <laughs> thank God. Yes, thank you. Um, but anyway, this paradox, and I don't know that it's. Seeing the other thing is the key to me is it's not just the subject. This, not this, uh, being subjected to the viewings of the evil, the violence, the ultraviolence, the hypersexualized, all the stuff that he sees with his eyelids pried open. It's also with the serum. There's something in the serum. They've been f giving him a drug. Yep. So there's something there too. I don't know that it's just through the subjected uh, evil of watching and viewing right. evil. And basically from now on, anytime he, he has a violent impulse or I guess an impure impulse or thought, he is uh, rendered physically ill to the point where he wants to die. Yes. And that carries us through the rest of the story. And that carries us through the rest of the story. And there's a couple pieces in there that make me laugh when he returns home. <clears throat> First off, we get we're introduced to his dad. Uh, his dad is the butler in The Shining. That's so, right. That's where I knew him from. Yeah. Um, and so that was a funny scene because his parents didn't want him to come back because they thought he was a murderer because he was, but they had their intuition was right. Um, my favorite part of that scene though is when he comes home and he says, I'm completely reformed. Yeah, uh, so naive. They so don't want anything to do with they've actually rented his room out to joe the lodger <laughs> so i love he's not joe. Getting... i love joe because joe is saying everything i want to say yeah joe is us he's the guy that's like you're an idiot you're not coming in here and ruining your parents lives again life again get out of here i just i love how his mom just cries at the drop of a hat like yeah. 
for the rest of the movie. And I, I, I just thought that when he's, he wants to, he wants to hit Joe. So he gets sick, you know, he, and it's, he's starting to dry heave and do all that. And Joe's like, it's bloody disgusting. Oh God, man, what are you doing? It's pathetic, you know? And, <laughs> They're like, Joe, stop. He's like, it's disgusting. Like just the, the pure, like, cause have that's some manners. Yeah. Have some manners. Just the pure, uh, disdain he's got for him and disgust he feels towards him. Cause that's how we feel. I, I just, I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, you know what? Yeah. You deserve this. You deserve worse. Yeah. He deserves far worse. And his parents don't take him in. This causes him to, to kind of be homeless essentially to a degree. And, Here's where we get another one, Alan, and, and I'm sure you noticed this. He's now walking along the river walk, and here we are at about an hour 40 in, and we get another Kubrickian deep stare zoom shot of Alex into the river. He stops, and we get the long, the shining Jack stare. Yep. These got to mean something. Like, he's got to position these in the story somewhere in particular, this one, to me, to me, this is where Alex realizes that the sins of the past are coming back to bite him. And, that, and that's what this next sequence is. It's every single person he's hurt getting revenge on him. Um, yeah, so here we have the flip with the stare. Right. But I, to me, it was he's looking at the river, then it cuts to the bridge, then it cuts to him, then the bridge and the river, and it cuts back and forth. I, to me, it's thinking like he maybe he realizes he'd be better off dead. Yeah, I think there's contemplation there of a, de a deeper, darker thought. Yes. But the vagabond shows up, asks him for money. And then this is the vagabond that they beat the shit out of at the beginning of the film. And he remembers Alex. This was funny to me, actually. <laughs> and uh, he remembers Alex and then kind of pushes him through the, the tunnel where there's like a group of vagabonds. And they basically start to beat the shit out of him. I love it. Love it. I, I love every second of, of this. And here's what's funny is the voiceover says of Alex saying old age, having a go with the youth. <laughs> well, yes. Every single thing that happens to him in this next little sequence, it's always like, Oh, I'm a poor, your poor suffering narrator. You know, it's, there's never any yeah. realization that I caused this. This exactly. is exactly, it's all like, I'm just, and that's what sociopaths do. Like it's all, it's everyone else's fault. They're all, you know, the world is just out to get him for no good reason. Because the next one is the cops that break up the vagabonds from beating the shit out of them are Dim and Georgie. So they've reformed themselves in the sense of being hoodlums to now authorities or officers. And we find out later that the government's been doing this. They've been hiring hoodlums to, to join the police force to rough people up. Right. To the crime. They take, and this is the recompense again, is they take Alex out into the woods and they basically beat him, drown him, submerge him in a horse trough to how the did point they, of. How did they do this shot? Did he have a breathing apparatus under there? He had to have. That's funny that you say that because when I was watching it, I did think, is there some kind of apparatus under there? Some there kind of straw or something? There has to be because he was under there for a long time. And you don't do that to an actor. I don't care if you're Kubrick or Spielberg or whoever. You're, you're not going to do that kind of thing to an actor. I did notice that Georgie and Dim, who, who the, the, the actors who play those characters, they hit 
Alex with the nightstick, really weak, really, really weak. They're, they're, they're trying to, the idea is that he's, they're drowning and submerging him, but they're also beating him with their nightsticks. And I noticed that like the hits on the nightsticks are like super weak. Yeah. Oh yeah. They're powerful because they use that music stinger, that sound effect stinger. And it helps give the illusion of that ferocity, like that hit. But if you really watch him like laying into the back of his leg, like it's like this little flaccid hit. <laughs> yeah. They're pulling their punches. I think they feel bad for him because they're, he's fucking drowning in the water. <laughs> this is like the 10th time they've done it. Cooper they leave him out in the middle of nowhere though. So they leave. He's beat up. He winds up back. This is where, this is the recompense, the perfect, comeuppance for everybody because he ends up back at the house that he beat up the husband and raped the wife uh with his former droogs at the beginning of the movie and he's just so populated from getting drowned and beaten that he doesn't realize where he's at as he stumbles up to this house he doesn't realize it's the writer's house from previous we see that shot of the writer again he's at his typewriter one thing God. I noticed in there was the newspaper clippings and the headlines. I did notice that too. The, my favorite one was Catwoman Killer. <laughs> I like that. Because they oh. called him Catwoman Killer. Um, except this time, here's what's funny, Alan. This time, <clears throat> the pan or the, uh, the track shot from the writer pans o- or tracks over. Instead of seeing his wife, we see a, a complete brute. Just a muscle man. Lifting weights, man. And either he's married or he's just his buddy, whatever it is. I don't know what the relationship is there. I kind of took it as his caretaker. Yeah. Somebody who's looking after him. In-home caretaker. And it's none other than Darth Vader. No, it is? That's David Prowse. I I never knew that. Um. In watching it again, I was like, yeah, that's Darth Vader. Whoa. What was the name? Julian in the thing? Julian's in the movie. But you watch it and you're just like, he is a big dude. I never knew David Prowse was that big. Never knew that. See? Wow. Alex stumbles up to the door. They open the door and he's bloody and beaten. And David Prowse just picks him up like a freaking... Doll. <laughs> uh, brings him in and Alex actually uh, recognizes where he is he knows that this was the house where he performed those acts with his droogs but he suspects the writer won't know him because he had his masky on I think there's a moment of panic there but then he realizes he realizes yeah so man did where- he ever make himself at home in this house Oh my gosh, that bathtub scene. He's cold, wet, beat up. He basically, they, they, they make him a tub to warm him up. Is he ever, is he just more cozied up than you could ever be? Yes. And also there is a moment there while when Julian's holding him that uh, the writer says, I know you. And yeah. you're like, oh God, here we that's, go. That's cool. This is the final. Oh, shit, he remembers. He, yeah, he heard yeah. the voice. He knew something. Yeah. Because he had then, the mask on, so it'd be almost, you'd be harder. Exactly. But instead, he says, you were in the papers. You're the one they gave that experimental treatment to. And this guy, I don't know. They, they mentioned that he, he writes political literature or something or subversive literature. Yeah. 
Um, I don't really know exactly what it, what he is, but he definitely, he, he, he has no, from what I can understand, you tell me if you disagree. I don't think he cares about Alex or his plight or what he's been through. I think he just sees a pawn that he can use against the government. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly right. I think it's all about his political motivations Yes, to his party. And yeah. it's not really established in depth, but the, the nuance is there. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, absolutely. He doesn't care about Alex. He just knows that that's the kid that got, badly treated by the other party, <laughs> right. the other governmental party. And if I play my cards right, he can give us the info and we can spin this thing. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I, sure. I love that. It's, I don't know. It, in any other hands, it might become a little too convoluted, but I, I think it's just, it's done well. Like we don't need a whole lot of backstory. We get the motivation. I, I like it. I think it's done well. Yeah, I and think it, it works. And, and, and it intrigue, just a little intrigue in there. Yeah, it's got, it's, it's a, it, there's a bit of political commentary without being in your face about it. Right. And it's on both sides too, because both sides, because we'll get into that at the end. Yeah. But he's in this bathtub. We got to talk about this bathtub scene because he's just relaxing, having a good time, so much so that this is his own demise. He, he starts his own demise. He already had, right, from all his other actions. But especially now, he gives himself up. He basically holds his hands out and says, I'm the guy that raped your wife. Yep, and caused her death. Uh, not directly, indirectly, but he did cause her death. Because he starts singing, uh, singing in the rain, which is what he was singing while he was committing the heinous acts. And so now the writer knows. And that scene, it cuts back to the writer. He hears him outside the bathroom. And it's this paralyzing close-up from down low. It's it looks like he's having a heart attack. Yeah, it's the shining shot from when Jack's in the, uh, the, the, the freezer. Th not the freezer, the, I don't know, the food cabinet storage Yeah, it's place. the freezer. Yeah, when he's leaning against the door and you see from underneath. Yeah, it's great. But I, I love how, um, how Alex starts out humming it. And then like little by little. And then by the end, he's rocking out, man. He's having a great time in that bath. Just singing oh, a song. He is, he is loving it. And I also love that the, um, that we know, I like how he plays it. I like how it, it gets played out. Cause uh, I like how the writer now knows who Alex really is, but Alex doesn't know that he knows. Yes, yes. And I like that, that play back and forth. Um, even though Alex knew when he arrived. Right. It's, it's a fun little cat and mouse game. And it makes this next little scene super fun. So and after Alex, Gene Kelly's the shit out of Singing in the Rain. <laughs> um, uh, the writer basically drugs him. Right? Yeah, but... This little scene where he's eating dinner yeah. by himself before the writer comes down and he's just making himself at home, you know, just uh, just enjoying the spaghetti <laughs> and he's just having a good time. And then the writer comes down and we can see it all over his face. We know. And we know that Julian, this big muscle man, David Prowse knows, and he's trapped. You know, he's totally trapped. 
And I love the little glares at the right. Again, hamming it up big time yeah. over the top performance. But it's so it works so well. And just the way he's yelling his little comments, like he asks him if the food's good, but he just screams it at him. Yeah. You know? Try the wine. Yeah, <laughs> just fills up, fills up his, his glass and makes him drink glass after glass. And it's just, it's so fun. And then a cut to Darth Vader just staring him down. Yes, yeah, exactly. Well, and Alex, this is when Alex gets a little suspicious because he's being so forceful with telling him to drink the wine. So he's trying to stall and he's like, oh, it's good color. It's a good smell. You know, he's trying to stall it. And then finally he tastes it and it tastes fine. So he starts pounding it. Yeah. Uh, and then the writer's friends come over and they, well, here's, here's something I want to, I want to bring up. Dr. Strange love was our last podcast. And Dr. Strange love has Darth Vader, James Earl Jones. This film clockwork orange has Darth Vader, David Prowse. Boom. That's Kubrick directed boom. Darth Vader. He made Darth Vader before Darth Vader was Darth Vader. That's right. Um, and then, so you were, you were getting into it. The writer, if he either, it, it seems like he drugged him because he, 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 right. Cause he just, yeah. he, he blacked out fast. Yeah. Well, yeah. The, the writer's friends come over. He kind of tells the friends about his experience. And Jess was watching this with me. And she said the lady who came in the house was, the woman who was singing at the milk bar. And I, I, I couldn't tell. I'll have to verify that. I don't believe that's who it I, is. I didn't think so either, but she was pretty sure. So I don't know. But um, Because his, these are, from what I can tell, his political associates. Well, yeah. And that's why I was like, are they reporters of some sort? Or what? I mean, I that just did. My, I, I kind of put uh, colleagues, friends, other reporters, right. journalists, that are in the same political party as him because they want to set a coup against the the right. interior of the minister of interior, the right. other party. And there's an election coming up, so they definitely yes. yeah, exactly. So they want the inside information on the Ludovico treatment so they can spin it and then make it sound like shit. And I think after here's my theory. I don't know, but I'm I'm, I'm spitballing here. My theory is that after the writer realized who he was. I think the plan changed. Now instead of using him as a pawn, now they're gonna they're gonna try and make him want to kill himself because that's even more powerful. If this treatment was so bad that Alex wanted to kill himself rather than have to live with it, I think that's my my theory is that the plan changed once they found out who he was. Well, it definitely changes, and I think you're right about because if they if the if that's a suicide and that gets published, that's even bigger. But I also think the motivation was redemption for his wife. Um, and, and once he blacks out, they put him in the attic of the house and they just crank up Beethoven because this is the, the signal for the nausea, the anxiety. So good. I, I just, I love it. It's the irony is so wonderful. And the shot of, of them uh, down below in the darkness while, while he's up above in the light and he's just going, getting sick and just the shot of them, the way that, that Kubrick posed them in that shot, the writer's looking up and, and kind of scowling, but you can tell he's enjoying it. Julian looks troubled in the back. Like, I don't know, but it almost feels like there's some sort of religious 
symbolism going on here, the way they were posed in that shot. I yeah, could that be- is kind of interesting. There is a, a positioning there. And also the way he's sitting. <laughs> yes. You have that Last Supper-esque type view. Yeah, I kind of felt that way. It was just, it was a really cool shot. And knowing what we know about Kubrick, there's something, I, I imagine there's got to be something important there. And cranking up Beethoven. And once again, that's the, now it's the contrast of something that he loves so much is now the trigger for the thing that's going to be his end. Yep. And this leads him to, and he hates it so bad. He's triggered so much that he goes into an attempted suicide. He basically, uh, he, he basically Texas chainsaw massacres out the window. Yeah. He, he sallies right out of that. He sallies window. out the window. Um, does not die is, is injured, but is laid up in a hospital. What was the deal with once they cut to the hospital and it shows him that he's still alive. And then the stupid scene of the moaning behind the curtain and then a naked nurse and a doctor jump out. I thought, I love that. I thought that was, it was funny. It was just a little, just a little pinch of humor there. The, um, now here's the thing. The ploy works. The ploy worked for the writers because they started running bad press about what was going on with the Ludovico treatment. It gives, it spins, it gives bad press to the minister of the interior. So it worked at least to a degree but. because now it's an attempted suicide of a former patient and it, it spins it the wrong way. But the minister of the interior did not get to where he's at by being a sucker. He knows how to, he knows how to double spin this stuff. He knows how to play the game. He does, man. He's not afraid to get his hands dirty. <laughs> uh, tell us how he does it, uh, Alan. It's actually a really fun scene. I really, I really like it. It's um, uh, Alex is in his, his bed and the minister of the interior comes in and everyone else leaves the room and he has a little discussion with Alex and basically scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You know, they also cure him by the way. So he's cured of the treatment and that's kind of what they're doing while he's in the hospital. But uh, the, the scene where he is cutting the minister of the interior is cutting Alex's food and Alex is all in a cast. So he can't feed himself. And Alex just pops his mouth open and in, in goes the food. It's to me, it's hilarious. It's, it's symbolic. It's great. It's wonderful. And it just, Alex is back to his old self. And you can tell at that moment that he's just, he, he's playing everybody again, or he thinks he is. Yeah. There's a, also in that scene, uh, his parent, he does wake at some point just before that to his parents who are looking at him. I find it funny because now they're completely sympathetic more so than before because they just figured the government made him do it. So they just chalk it up for like, Oh, our, our son is, he's okay. It wasn't all his fault. And also Alex believes that the treatment was a dream. Oh, that's right. No, the, the treatment to fix him, right? Yeah. The yeah. Ludovico treatment was a dream. It was something I had this imagination or this dream that they were in my goal over my, my head, my. Oh, I thought, I thought that he was saying that the, the. Well, he is cured from in this, at least from, I would, my guess he's cured from it, but he still has remnants. And he, he mentions that it, he thought it was a dream 
that they tried to force him to do all these horrible things, like keep his eyelids pried open and watch the violence and all watch all the things. Okay. And, and it's chalked up to a dream. Cause I thought he, he, he was interpreting them fixing a Ludovico treatment as a dream. So being cured of it is what I thought he interpreted as a dream, but I, I misinterpreted that. I think he had a literal dream that it was. I yeah. Think, I think you're right. I think but you're they, right. They do a psychological test on him. And they get his responses to open-ended questions and statements. And he replies, and we know he's cured from the treatment because he replies with all the violent sexual jokes. Yeah, yeah. And he's happy as can be. The minister comes in. We finally learn his name, not that it matters, but it's Fred. And he comes in, spins it, takes a photo op. Yes. <laughs> that, cracked, that cracked me up so bad. Basically take a photo op that's showing that he's okay and that Alex is on his side. So he double spins it. And then <laughs> Alex just like with the shit eating grin and putting the thumbs up and it's just so fun. I mean, just it's Malcolm McDowell played that so well. And let's talk about his performance and then we'll round it out. He's great. Oh it, yeah. It's, yeah. It's got to have been hard to carry a film of this nature with all the back and forth between seriousness and then some comedy and then back and forth. And uh, I think he's just fantastic. I don't know how old he was when he did this, but man, he was, he was great to the point where I've, I, I almost hesitate to even look at it as a performance because I was so disturbed. I was so, I was that disturbed. Usually when I'm watching a movie that's disturbing, I'm still, understanding that it's a movie and I can see the performances for the fact that they're performances. I kind of lost myself watching this because I was so appalled by what Alex was doing. And that's credit a hundred percent to Malcolm McDowell. Cause I think he just did such a great job of encapsulating the sociopath that I don't, it's a little scary. Yeah. What Kubrick does well. And I'm, I, I mean, Malcolm McDowell is fantastic. Whatever he does in his cast selection how he selects a, a, an actor. He's always pretty good because you think about Jack and The Shining, you think about all his leads to me mostly seem incredibly talented. And then he's able to like every time. So every, nails it every single time. So this is a clockwork orange. This is 1971. That means McDowell was born in 43. So he's what? Uh, 27, 26, 27, yeah. something like that. Uh, when he did this. All right, Al, let's jump into your favorite part of the podcast. Wait, before we do that, oh, I, go want, ahead. I want to talk real quick about the ending because it is not the ending that's in the book. Yes, I read that. I don't know the ending in the book, but I did read that. So uh, uh, is it Anthony Burgess? I think I want to say the, the author of the book's name. He deliberately divided. Um, let's see here. Yeah, Anthony Burgess. He deliberately divided the book up into three sections with seven chapters each. And that all adds up to 21 because he wanted it to be 21 because apparently uh, 21 is a, is a vital age, it is an important step in human development. When you get to the age 21, that's a big uh, momentous step, I guess. I, I don't quite understand. Um, when the book was published in England, it was published with all seven chapters. When it was published in America, the American publisher left out the final chapter. 
And in the final chapter, I, I actually liked his ending better. And to me, it gives a little bit of hope in the final. It's a little convoluted, a little, you know, a little unbelievable, but it is a happier ending. Let me in guess. The it's the CIA. No, CIA. Yes. Uh, it's aliens. Um, in the final chapter, if I, and it's been a, a long time since I've read it. So if I'm messing it up, I'm sorry. And someone correct me, but he, he goes back to his old ways of being a hoodlum, being a little gangster, uh, running the streets, going crazy. I think he even has new droogs, but he uh, runs across his, the one droog who didn't, the guy we don't even know his name. And that guy, it, it, I think he's got a family now. He's got a wife and kids, if I'm not mistaken, and kind of looks at Alex like, you're, you're still doing this? Like, we're old, you know, what are you doing? And, you know, long story short, Alex comes to the realization that this probably isn't something he should be doing and isn't something he wants to be doing for the rest of his life. And so it gives a little bit of hope at the end. Again, if I butchered that, I'm sorry. Someone correct me, but that's how I remember it. Which is different from this because he's uh, the last shot is him being wild and crazy. Yes. And basically saying, oh, I was cured. All right. Yeah. yeah. Over uh, him fornicating, giving the old in and out. We'll just say fornicating to be polite as you a crap. In and out. I'm sorry. I shouldn't laugh at that, but that's fine. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Appropriate things tonight. I think it's okay. Uh, we've covered a lot of those. Let me read a couple Google reviews. Uh, what do you think the ratio is from a good five star to, to one star? I'm going to say it's, it's, we're probably get more one stars than usual, but I say it's still mostly going to be five stars, but I, I'm guessing that the one stars are going to be pretty, my favorite kind, the ones that are written poorly and have no idea what they're talking about. Okay. Well, let's go with uh, a couple that I'm reading here. These are not pre-read. These are just selected, so we'll see how they turn out. This is uh, Roy, nine months ago, four out of five stars. For the first few minutes, Clockwork Orange doesn't seem to aim at any specific message, but it is just plain disturbing. Too much for its own good. The mainstream audience might feel tempted to stop witnessing the initial nonsense. That's probably a pretty fair assessment. I think so. I don't think it's too much for its own good, though. I think it's setting up the rest of the story. And I think it's really, I think it's really important that we despise Alex going forward. I agree. But that was not a bad Yeah, I agree. Through. Okay, a couple more. Three stars out of five. Great movie, period. The character of Alex is a great protagonist villain because he's everything I despise about people like him. And I mean that in the best possible way. I'm so confused by that. I, I don't know. I don't you even know. I don't even know where to go. He's a character you love to hate and a character you can't help but like at the same time. Interesting. Can you not help but like Alex? Wait, wait. Oh. He was like a pre-joker in a lot of ways. Eh, maybe maybe i don't know i didn't like alex at all no alex is an ass yeah i didn't like i don't think there's anything uh redeemable about alex 
Maybe he just means that there's something about him that is intriguing and you, you want to watch, like you want to keep watching him. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. Two more actually. The film is a little too disconcerting for me, but still a great time watching it. The use of colors, the cinematography is just pure art. It's weird. Sometimes parentheses, parentheticals, Disturbing and absorbing. Okay. I, I, I don't know where to go. We need to articulate a little bit stronger in certain areas. Okay, last one. Two really- out of five. Controversial contents doesn't make a film a masterpiece. Oh, God. Did Mr. Kubrick purposely ke- keep something odd in every movie to make audience confused. Oh, my God. In this film, the colorful house, costumes, etc. What the hell is that for? Today's cinematic industry, this film doesn't even fit as in controversial category. I'm reading this verbatim. My head hurts. And acting also a bit of overacting compared to present generation's film. I watched this film after viewing the, viewing the reviews Thought it had something. Total waste of time. Oh, man. I, I don't even know what they said until total waste of time. That gave me a headache. And I read it. And you read it. You had to read it. You had to view the words and make sense of them. Okay. So some, some mostly good, the couple in there. And there was one I think that was mostly valid in terms. Do you have any trivia, any summation, any uh, any? additional info on this uh before you you pop in your rating not really the only thing i i can really say is like i said i think it's about adolescence i actually think it's it's more about um the development of human life and how we go from an adolescent or a, a child stage where we just we need to get all of our base needs uh satisfied immediately uh and then we go to a point where where you know everything's about sex and you're an adolescent and you can't help it any and then you get hit with the world man the world slams you in the face and you realize that your actions have consequences and then towards the end i i, I think he just kind of reverts back to where he was and i don't know if that's uh, a comment on getting older i don't i don't know maybe it is because i mean people were feeding him literally and taking care of all his needs so i don't know but i will say one thing i did notice is if you watch this film there's something very interesting when Alex is in a comfortable place. It's always in a narrow room. It's always uh, shot with a very wide lens. And it almost feels like, and I don't, again, I don't want to be super pretentious and, but it almost feels like it's the womb. Like he feels like he's enclosed and safe. He's safe in, in, in a safety zone where he is in a point where he's uncomfortable or uh, in pain, or the world is smacking him in the face. It's usually far more wide open, lots of space, uh, nowhere to run, kind of. You know, it's, it's wide open. So there's nowhere where he can curl up in a ball and, and feel safe. And so to me, that kind of drove it home. That's my interpretation. I don't know. I could be talking out of my ass like I usually do. Uh, it's a great movie, though, man. Like, it's, it's tough to watch, but like, Kub- like all Kubrick stuff, it's, it's worth watching. And it will make you think no matter what. I'm giving it 7.7 7 glasses of milk. 
Ooh, glasses of milk. I like it. That's good. That's good. 7.7 for Alan on a clockwork orange. So we have uh, the uh, IMDB comes in at 8.3 out of 10. Um, And then Rotten Tomatoes comes in at uh, looks like 88% for the critics and 93% for the audience. Interesting. So the Very, audience. It, what was that? What was critics? 88. 88. I would have thought it'd be higher. See, I'd have thought that had been potentially reversed. Yes. I'd almost yeah. have thought that the critics that had come in at 93 and the audience maybe at 88. So that's, yep. that's interesting. Um, yeah. So quickly, I won't get it. We, I think we covered a lot of good things about the film uh, it is, I think it's a well put together film. It, you know, we're going to do that, uh, and you should do it too, but I'm going to do my, my Kubrick, uh, breakdown top to bottom. This is in the one to two spot. I can guarantee that once again, I don't entirely know that I understand everything about the film. I think there's something to be said about order, about society, about independent choice, about, I think, like you mentioned, adolescence and immaturity, uh, obviously violence, uh, our nature as humans to uh, try to pursue that which we think we desire and think we're entitled to, even though we're not. So there's a form of an inability to uh, pull yourself back and and make judgment calls that are more appropriate. Like there's a, 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 a the, the animalistic uh, approach to things. Um, and what makes us different as humans is we can, we can analyze and not necessarily have to pursue those animalistic urges all the right. We, we, we can, we have a a moral code inside that allows us to logically separate things for what they are. So a lot of things going on there. Um, I did read something and it's just simply on online, but I thought it was kind of interesting. I don't know how true it is, a clockwork orange, it kind of refers to a person who has the appearance of uh, like lovely color, uh, but is in fact only a clockwork toy wound up by God or the devil uh, mm. or the almighty state. So mm. that's referring to those political moments too. So interesting there, maybe like a little tie into the actual title in, in terms of what it means. It appears to be colorful, appears to be juicy, appears to be uh, succulent and, and, and worth uh, but in the reality is it's just a, it's, it's a, it's a toy that's been manipulated by some other entity, whether that's spiritual or political. So I don't know. That's kind of interesting. What do you think uh, of that, that metaphor? I don't know that. I mean, I just read it and I thought it was interesting. I don't know that I agree. I, I don't know that I entirely agree with it because I still think my breakdown of it is that there's too much in there's you're taking away the ability for independent choice. And that's what I think sets us apart from other animals. And that's what I mean is we have the ability to decipher things right. and make choices based on those logical, pragmatic, the implications and of things that might be. The priest even says that, you know, he says straight up that once that the treatment is done, he says he doesn't have free will anymore. He doesn't have choice. Yes. So, so. In that sense, I think that comparable is probably true because now he's 
appears to, like at least when he had the treatment now he is uh an engine within or not an engine a, a toy within the the cog right of the machine we can turn him and tell him what to do and choice is gone so i think if you're looking at the film as a whole those are the things i'm looking at and i don't know the answer like we said right. before we're probably talking out our ass but i think there's something to do there with choice uh independence human nature ability to make decisions versus being a cog in a machine and just kind of going through the day to day. Yep. Uh, super violent. Um, I did see something online that I was reading. It was kind of 14 or 15 year old to watch this movie. What are your thoughts on that? No. Oh man. No, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I say no, but maybe I'm overly conservative about it. I don't want my 14 year old kid watching this movie. I know. I was just thinking about, cause I have a, a 15 and 16 year old and Are I they just in high school at 14. Uh, yes, that's freshman. My, my determinant should, that's the dumbest analogy. Oh, know, Are they in high, have they reached high school age? <laughs> no, but I think that's a good way, a good way to contextualize it. I, I just, I just think it, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. I just think it when you get into high school, you're exposed even, I mean, junior high too, but you're exposed to so much more in some sense. Yes. I don't know. I, I think a 14 or 15 year old, I would definitely want to make sure they understand the context of it. Because I mean, like we, you just read some reviews that people were like, it's, it's glorifying violence. And it's not at all, like not even a little bit. It's showing it, but showing it doesn't mean it's glorifying it. So I would want to make sure that I, told my kids like this is not like they're not glorifying that they're not telling you to go out and do this stuff they're not saying that this is fun you know it's there's a deeper meaning here but i just don't not sure they'd be able to understand it i don't know yeah i think that's a good point i don't think contextually they would get the essence of, of all of it right and i think that's a good point so i'm going to come in i, I mentioned here I, I don't know where i place it is it one is it two on the kubrick scale so with that being said, I'm coming in hot and heavy. I had a feeling. Hot and heavy. Alan's going to be like, what? And, and here's the deal, Alan. We've talked about some really good stuff. And I think we've dissected things that make sense. And like we said, we don't know all the answers, of course. But I think we made some good points. Yeah, I think so. At, at the same time, I still don't know <laughs> what it is entirely, if I can explain it fully about why I like this movie so much. Part of it's because it's maybe contrary to who I am. I don't know what else to say. So I'm going to come in. 9.2. Bowler hats. Bowler hats. That's smart. That's smart. You even brought the prop for it. I just couldn't wear it the whole time because it got too hot. Yeah. yeah. Sweaty, man. 9.2. 9.2. Still not your highest rated movie on this show. It's not my highest rated movie. My highest rated movie on this show is In Bruges. Admittedly, my brain can't comprehend the entirety of Clockwork Orange. This is a 1971 film from Stanley Kubrick starring Malcolm uh, McDowell. In the future, a sadistic gang leader is imprisoned and volunteers for a new experiment, but it doesn't quite go as planned. I'm Gabe Vienendahl with along with Alan Martindale. This is the Tame Aperture Podcast. Go check us out at tameaperture.com for previous episodes. Give us suggestions on new episodes to review. Until next time, everybody, Tame Aperture signing out. 
The Tame Aperture podcast is produced by Dutch Angle Pictures in association with Studio B Productions. Listen, watch and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify and YouTube.